Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, happy Easter. Welcome, happy morning. So glad to welcome you to Church of Our Savior on this high holy day. When I say high holy day, I'm not talking about April Fool's. Um, it would have been something, though, wouldn't it, to see Jesus pop out of the tomb and say, April Fool's. <laughs> I've actually been thinking, you know, it's a rare convergence. The Easter and April Fool's Day fall on the same day. Hasn't happened since 1956. I've been thinking about it sort of from the other direction, uh, really aware that uh, any who may be skeptical uh, of the resurrection of Jesus, that they might find some humor or some irony in the fact that these two days, Easter and April Fool's Day, fall on the same day. And I want to tell you, I would stake my life on the truth of the resurrection, but I want to acknowledge uh, that, skept- that skepticism is understandable. Uh, it's, uh, dead men don't typically rise from the dead, right? So, so I would say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a scientific impossibility. But I would also say that the claim of Jesus' resurrection has never been uh, that his resurrection could be explained scientifically. Uh, it was a, an event of divine doing. It was an event of supernatural significance. And yet, the question of the resurrection is incredibly important. All of Christianity and including the very existence of the Christian church, it all hangs on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead that first Easter morning. Now, of course, in order to be a nice person, you don't need a resurrected Savior. There are a lot of nice people that don't believe in the resurrection. But contrary to popular belief, the central claim of Christianity is not that we should all be nice people. I mean, you should. That's a good thing. But the central claim of Christianity is that God has graciously and lovingly forgiven our sins and reconciled us to Himself, and all of that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is Christianity's central claim, that you are loved by God without qualification. And through Jesus... God has done everything necessary to bring you to or to reconcile you to Himself. But without the resurrection, that can't be true. Without the resurrection, the cross is just the sad death of an innocent man. Without the resurrection, death wins. The unique Christian claims of our forgiveness and of reconciliation to God, and the very hope of heaven, it's all validated by the resurrection. St. Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. It's a big statement. And so the resurrection deserves an honest look from all of us, whether we are skeptical or not. So what I want to do in the sermon this morning is I want to take it 
a look at just a few reasons as to why I believe you can trust the resurrection of Jesus as an historical event. And then I want to touch on why that event matters for you and for me today. Now, of course, volumes have been written on the resurrection of Jesus and the historical evidence for it. And so, of course, I can't cover that all here in this sermon. Uh, Please don't expect that what I have to say is airtight. I would love to talk with you more about it uh, if you would like to have more inquiry or to tell you where I've gotten my information. But one of the principal assumptions of modern skeptics is that people in Jesus' day were just much more likely to believe supernatural stories than we are today, right? We're much more sophisticated now. That is simply not true. That's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. They knew just as well then as we do now that dead people don't come back to life. Throughout the Mediterranean world, all the talking about the Gentiles and the Greek civilization, the Roman culture, the prevailing spiritual belief was that the material world was bad. And so the goal of the soul in death was to shed the material body and leap to a more perfect spiritual realm. A resurrected physical body would have been seen as moving in the wrong direction. Now, for the, for the Jews living there in Jesus' time, they, they did believe that creation was good. God had created it. Creation, the physical world, was good. And many did believe in a resurrection. But it was without exception, a universal resurrection for all humanity at the end of time. For one person to be resurrected while life carried on as usual was a preposterous notion. And for God to be confined to a human body was blasphemous. And so Jews and Gentiles alike simply did not have a category for a resurrection like the one that Easter proclaims. And we can see that right in our gospel passage from Mark. Despite the fact that Jesus had claimed several times before he died that he would be killed and would rise again on the third day, these dear women in the passage... These followers of Jesus, they were not expecting a resurrection. Nor were the disciples expecting a resurrection. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw Jesus laid in the tomb. They saw the stone rolled in front front of His dead body to seal the entrance. These women were approaching the tomb worried about how they were going to get into the tomb in order to properly attend to Jesus' dead body now that the Sabbath was over. And then when they see the empty tomb, and they hear from the angelic young man the very idea of a resurrection terrifies them. And of course it did. What would you think if someone that you loved came back from the dead? It would be terrifying. And yet, literally, Overnight, quite apart from any cultural or religious expectation, the community of Jesus' followers began worshiping Him as God, proclaiming that He had been individually and uniquely and physically resurrected from the dead. Now, if you're going to have a resurrected Jesus, you've got to have three things. 
You first have to have a Jesus that was all the way dead and buried. Then you got to have an empty tomb. And then you have to have multiple witnesses that saw him walking around after he had died. So we might be able to convince ourselves that Jesus' followers could have possibly mistaken, uh, been mistaken about his death. That you know, maybe uh, he had merely swooned. They were, after all, mostly fishermen. They weren't medical experts. But the Romans who crucified him, they were professional killers. There was no mistaking death on their part. They determined that they did not need to break his legs because he was already dead. And just to make sure, they pierced his side with the spear. It would have gone into his lungs. And blood and water, which flowed from Jesus' side, are perfectly in line with what happens to a body after a violent death like that. Jesus was all the way dead. Second, the, t- the empty tomb. The tomb was surely empty because if it was not, the religious leaders and the political leaders could have just put down the rumors by producing the body. Say, no, no, you got the wrong tomb. It's over here. Here's his dead body. Even the most skeptical scholars acknowledge that the tomb was surely empty. That's second. The third, of course, in order to say that someone didn't just steal the body, there have to be witnesses. Witnesses that saw Jesus alive after his death. Well, our epistle reading from 1 Corinthians that we have this morning, it's actually one of the very earliest Christian writings that there is. It's written by St. Paul uh, within 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. It was written before any of the Gospels. And it's a public letter. It's written to the Christians in Corinth. And Paul reminds them uh, of what he told them a few years earlier when he was with them. So that would be 18 to 20 years uh, after Jesus' death. And he said, Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he says that Jesus appeared to the disciples and He appeared to over 500 people, most of whom, at the time of Paul's letter, were still alive. What's Paul saying? Go ask them if you have questions. They're the witnesses. He never could have issued such a public challenge like that if those witnesses didn't exist. Then, of course, we have the eleven apostles, plus Paul himself, all of whom saw the resurrected Jesus, and all of whom, except for one, died as martyrs. And they didn't die together as if there was um, if they, if there's some sort of pressure, or if they, but they, they were scattered all over the known world, telling people about the resurrected Savior. And given the rest of the evidence, I think, that it's easier to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead than it is to believe that those men would have all suffered and died for what they knew was a lie. So I hope that that gives you something to think about, something to chew on. Uh, it's, not simply, uh, it's not so simple as just dismissing the resurrection as scientifically impossible, because of course it's scientifically impossible. That's the point. In fact, there have been many who started out not even believing in God, who have come to a saving faith in Christ simply because they took an honest look 
at the evidence for the resurrection, and they could come to no other conclusion than that it happened, and that it only happened if there was a God who made it happen. So, that's the evidence part. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that you believe it, that you've heard enough, you believe the resurrection is true. Why does it matter? That's the big question. Even if it's true, why does it matter today? So, this might sound a little controversial, but I want, in order to see why it matters, let's look at Tom Brady. I mean, to talk to Jaguars fans about Tom Brady on Easter Sunday is is a risk. I'm not a fan. Yay. (laughs) The Christian writer and Episcopal priest and sports junkie Nick Lannon recently wrote an article about a series on Facebook TV called Tom vs. Time. Now, I had not heard of this series, uh, nor had I heard of Facebook TV, but that's another story. But it is a series about Tom Brady, a quarterback for the Patriots, uh, and his quest to continue as a 40-year-old in, in, in the NFL. And Lannon writes this. He says, One of the first sentences Brady speaks in the series is this. If you want to compete with me, you better be ready to give up your life because I am going to give up mine. Lannon observes, The tragedy of Tom Brady is that he is giving up his life even now. Sure, Giselle and the kids make a pretty family for Facebook's cameras, but Brady's quest is an onerous one. If you choose something, he says, as he walks across his sun-dappled backyard towards football immortality, you're not choosing something else. Fittingly, though sadly, he is walking away from his family as he says it. What Brady is seeking so stringently is not actually victory or greatness or longevity or acclaim. Though he doesn't know it, he is seeking forgiveness. Forgiveness for the mistakes that he's made in games. Forgiveness for the times he has fallen short. Forgiveness for the times he's chosen football over family. But he is walking down a road that cannot by definition, end in forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not achieved. Forgiveness is received. Forgiveness is not achieved. Forgiveness is received. What the author is saying is that Tom Brady is trying to make up for his failures with a perfection that can never be attained in order to prove to the ones that he's failed that he is worthy of their love and affirmation, and acceptance. Now, I can't speak for Tom Brady, but I can speak for myself. And I can say that that resonates with me. Whether it is working really, really hard, whether it is putting on a fake smile, whether it is saying yes when I really want to say no, name dropping, anything else, Don't we all know the pressure of performance to prove to others that we are worthy of their affirmation? To prove to our boss, or our spouse, or our kids, or our mother-in-law, or to prove to our father who's been dead for years, and yet we keep 
trying and trying and trying to prove that we're worthy. Forgiveness is not achieved. Forgiveness is received. Divine forgiveness. Ultimate forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness. And all the peace and the hope that come with it are freely and personally offered to you not because you've achieved it, but because of the resurrection. Jesus says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can come to Him because He is alive. He's resurrected. Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And we can come to Him because He's resurrected. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. And I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He can walk with you through the hard times and see you through because He is resurrected. He has defeated death. And death no longer has the last word. Eternal life is offered to you because Jesus has defeated death. Everything you're looking for, everything that you were created for, it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ who loves you, who forgives you, who wants you to know Him, who wants you to have the hope and the comfort and the redemption that He offers through the good times and through the hard times. It's the resurrection. And you can trust it. And in fact, you can put your trust in it. Because Christ is alive. Christ is for you. Christ loves you. No fooling. Amen.